You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hey, what's up? Before you listen, I have a quick request from you. While you're over here listening, go ahead on down, give us a rating and a review, especially if you're on Apple Music. Let us know how much you appreciate what we bring, the conversation, the dialogue. Tell us how it supports you. Give us that good five star. We appreciate you. and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it is amazing to see you here where you are challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So this week, we're actually going to have a conversation that is less about one particular thing that's happening and a little bit more of kind of a constant thing. And so today, India is joining me along with our special guest. Our special guest today is Steve Disselhorst. He comes with a lot of lived experience and a lot of context from what he does, but the beautiful thing is we have an amazing conversation that is inspired by his book, Determined to be Dead, A Journey of Faith, Resilience, and Love. And being able to have this conversation about being an LGBTQ adoptive dad of two um, and how that shows up for himself, it shows up with the fact of how like this is your life and this is what you do and some of the things that he's navigating and how it shows up with his kids' schools. And he actually gives a great takeaway at the end and action step for you. So I highly suggest that you listen in. It is a great conversation. And I mean, there's so much that came from this. And I I think Andy and I could easily get like three extra (laughs) episodes out of it because there was just so much here. And so... I'm just going to stop talking and I'm going to let you listen. All right, let's dig into this. So I am happy and excited and really looking forward to this conversation. I am going to begin by allowing our illustrious guest, Steve Dishorse, to introduce himself. Welcome to the Pause on the Play audience, Steve. How are you? Great. Um, Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so first of all, my name is Steve Disselhorst. I'm an author, a leadership coach, and a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. And my most important job is I'm a gay dad um, of two adopted children. And um, that's uh, sort of the center of my world and everything else re- revolves around um, my, my two kids and raising them and, um, and their lives. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. So the beauty of what you said is that you acknowledge one of the things that is guiding everything that you're doing, which is, as you said, being a gay dad. And so understanding exactly what this looks like because you are in it, I think, you know, whenever you're in the space of DEI, it does give you a different perspective when you're not just speaking to something anecdotally, you're speaking from experience, you're in it. This is your reality. And so I I think it's important to be able to acknowledge 
how that really does play into tempering the work that you do. So my identity as a gay man, I would say, is very much um, an important part of my work in DEI. Um, my experience being uh, other growing up, my experience of being um, bullied and um, treated differently, uh, and also my experience very much of having to hide and um, in many situations having to pass, which I would say um, still happens to this day where um, it's assumed that, you know, I am heterosexual until I identify as a gay man, I think very much plays into how I show up in my work in DEI and um, how I intersect with other communities uh, that also face um, systemic uh, patriarchy, heterosexism, homophobia, racism, and um, really it's in that light that I try to find uh, commonality with other communities of my own experience and identify with their experience, even though I can't understand uh, their impression. And so that really, um, I think, is an important part of my, my being and my work. So we always like to have these moments where we leave space to be able to explain and define things so that we're all moving from common understandings and definitions of things. So can you talk a little bit about heterosexism? Because I think it's something that may not be a familiar term for everyone listening. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the it's the model is that there's uh, a man and a woman. Um, and the way that shows up is um, in, uh, first of all, for, for as being a gay dad, where it shows up really prominently is, you know, as, as our children, when they're born and shortly thereafter, we start reading to them, right? And in most of the books that you will find, children's books, it's mom and dad, mom and dad. And in many of those children's books, the, the mother is sort of the central figure. Um, dad is sort of playing a support role in a lot of those books, but it's generally always uh, mom and dad. And so your children are introduced to that very early, but that's really um, uh, the system that we live in. And so when you show up, folks um, often just assume you're heterosexual, unless for some reason um, they think you're effeminate, then they may uh, identify you as saying, oh, well, he could potentially be you know, queer or gay because he's more effeminate. So I think it's that model is, is, is that it's really, um, this is the normalcy of the world that, um, everyone is straight and the exception is, is queer, uh, LGBTQ people. And so, um, that's something that, you know, I, I face, uh, we as uh, queer people face on a, a daily basis. Um, one of the things that stands out to me is like, seeing that there has been more talk about what that looks like and how that's something that many people were not even thinking twice about years ago. Um, and I'm just wondering if you're beginning to see any shifts in how we're positioning what parents look like in the media at this moment. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, um, a lot more representation in the media. Um, a lot more uh, queer celebrities that are having children. Um, you know, there's a lot more examples now um, of, of queer people that are having children. But again, they're the exception, right? And they're sort of right. uh, an anomaly um, and something that we celebrate in the community um, and then more broadly, but it's definitely not considered mainstream. Um, and so I think that's um, an aspect of uh, that's always there, right? You're, it's not not mainstream, and therefore um, there are moments and inflection points when you know, for example, for me, you know, when I'm starting a, a new, say, a new summer camp with, you know, um, uh, with my kids, for example, a new summer camp, and there's new staff there. They don't know us from previous years. There's always that like moment of like, oh you know, like, you know, where's your wife or, you know, um, it, you know, is, is, is their mom going to pick them, pick, pick the kids up. And it's like, in those moments, you're like, yeah, no, um, you know, <laughs> oh gosh. and, and so it's just sort of like part of the, I think we've been in our community long enough now that 
were known um, to be, you know, a two dad family. But I would say initially it was uh, definitely, you know, something that we we faced. And then um, obviously as we go outside of our community, it's it's something we face. I would say here in the Bay Area, we're pretty lucky. Um, but, it, you know, I, I think the importance of this is, you know, outside the bubbles that we live in, right? Like there's a lot of um, areas within this country and then around the world where this is just really um, considered an anomaly, right? And in, in, in many cases, uh, it's impossible, right? Um, so that's where it's, uh, it's important to be open and visible for others to see. Well, and when I hear the visibility piece, and and I, I kind of chuckled there, not because it's funny, but because it's like, oh, unfortunately, I know what that can look and feel like. Yes. Because with my kids, they kind of are like, oh, both parents are going to automatically look the same and look just like these kids. And right. that is a very damaging mindset to have because it can then, if you, depending on what the situation is, it could possibly prompt the child, well, what? I mean, these are my parents. This is me. Why is this different? And when you mentioned before the passing piece, I think that that was such an important thing that stood out because the passing piece and how that intersects with the visibility side of it is so important because it talks about and acknowledges the limitations of somebody's very small binary view of what this has to look like and how that interacts the conversation and how you interact with the staff, how comfortable you are to say, hey, this is where I need support, or this is how the kids feel, how comfortable the kids feel to ask for support. And very often the term passing, people think about it more in the context of, um, like I had a grandmother that back in the Jim Crow era passed for white, not because she wanted to, but because that was the color of her skin. But it's often not talked about in the sense of somebody assuming your sexuality or your gender based on what they assume you are from what you look like and how that plays into it. And it's absolutely a representation of the heterosexism that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're, you know, describing is this idea of passing is what's so, um, troubling for the individual is it's like the other person is looking in at you and assuming you're either white or you're straight. And then there's an inflection point where like, you like have to have this truth to yourself. Like, do I speak up? Do I actually correct them? Do I speak my truth? You know? And it's interesting, like as a dad, when you're with your kids, right? Like you're, you're, you're focused on your kids, right? But there's a component of like, I need to show them like what it means to be honest and open, right. About who we are. Um, And so that's one that's been really kind of interesting for me. So my, both of my kids are adopted. I mentioned that I I think early on when my daughter was, you know, we were there when she was born. Um, We took her home from the hospital and, you know, I, I'd stayed home initially, uh, um, for three months paternity leave. And what was fascinating is I take her out and, um, you know, within the first year, the number of people that would say to me, Oh my God, she looks just like you. I went, went on until she was like two or three. Right. Um, and it was just like, Oh my God, here I am. I have this moment to teach, to teach these folks about adoption. Right. Like, <laughs> And then there's also this moment of inflection is as she got older, I was sitting there going, what are her needs? Right? Like, and the idea around like, when I explain to another person that she's adopted, how does that make her feel? Right? So it's a really complicated, right? Like the consideration of your child and like their feelings and how they're going to react to the situation and how you want to show up for yourself. I think that is so powerful that you're even asking yourself those questions about your daughter because I've seen varying situations in my upbringing where a parent was assumed to not be possible to be a parent or um, got negative feedback from individuals at the school, such as a teacher, when picking up their children because they didn't look the way that they thought the parent would look, haven't seen the other parent. Um, and it's very easy to to go into defense mode, but 
I think that it's so powerful that you're also considering how does that feel on the receiving end for your daughter to hear your response? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at some point as she got older and she was a, much more aware of like my interactions with other humans and how I was talking about us, I started to, I stopped actually explaining to people that she was adopted because I was like, I don't want her to actually think that I think anything less of her being my daughter because she was adopted. Right. Right. And we talk, and we've talked from the day she was born, we've always talked about her adoption. It's, you know, it's a complete, completely transparent and open, um, thing for them. So it's like all questions are on the table related to their adoption. But then it was like, I don't want to put her in a situation where she feels like less than. And so it's actually talking to both of you now. I'm like, I actually need to have a conversation with her about it. Cause she's nine now. I don't get those. I don't get those. Um, oh, she looks so much like you uh, anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't. She's beautiful though. Right. Well, she's- but I mean, unfortunately, as parents, we all we're, we're a little biased, which as we should be. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think what you're mentioning is a part of our, and I don't and I, I can't say that I know if it's just us as individuals or if it's also the additional awareness that we have to have because of how we um, walk through this life and the bodies that we inhabit and the way that we live our lives, but also what we do in that we have a different level of awareness of things. And sometimes it's trying to balance the advocacy of, you know, having conversations or informing people of things when teachable moments come up and prioritizing the well-being of our children and their emotional safety. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly. So now what I do related to her, you know, related to her school, really her adoption, her having two dads, I do it away from her with the necessary people that need to know. So it's not putting her on the spot, but it's giving them the information and explaining it. So it's like, I don't, and that's one of my goals is I never want her to be put on the spot about it. Um, It's, it's my, you know, my, my papa instinct to protect, right? Like she can share and she can talk about her, uh, her unique family when she's comfortable, but what I don't want is her to be put on the spot. Right. Um, and so I do do that now much more um, behind the scenes. And I talk to her. We talk a lot about their adoptions. And so it's like she's very aware. She's very comfortable. Both of my children adopted my second. My second, uh, Matthew, is adopted as well. And we talk very openly about it. So they have the tools and skills to talk about it. But I let them decide. Right. Like it's your decision around how you want to talk about it. I'm curious to know more about what does it look like to begin to, I don't know if partner is the right word, (laughs) but to partner with the individuals at your children's school. um, I think partner could be, but it feels like collaboration sometimes almost. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I I would say, um, First of all, I would say it's awareness, um, and then depending on sort of the level of uh, responsiveness, then it could be moved to a collaboration and partnership, right? Like, so, um, yeah, so definitely, um, I would say that we, um, we've we been very fortunate. Um, we, uh, you know, it's over the years, we had different experiences in different schools, Um, and so now we are very conscious when we're approaching a new school year, um, to educate the teachers that are, um, you know, responsible for our kids, uh, about the issues that are important to us. Um, so yes, and, and we've been very lucky, Uh, I would say currently in my daughter's school, we've been very lucky, um, my son was in a, in a, in a, like a preschool and, um, we had some, you know, unfortunate, uh, unfortunate things happen. It wasn't really from the administration. Well, we, I went to the administration to try to talk to them more about LGBT inclusive curriculum, and they were um, they were pretty open to it, but then they never followed through. 
Um, mm. And then what we ended up having is um, one boy kept asking my son repeatedly over where his mom was. Where's your mom? Where's your mom? And um, one day, you know, I was bringing him to school and, you know, he came into the classroom and this kid came over pretty quickly and was like, well, where's your mom? And I could just see my son's face like, you know, like just kind of start to frown and sort of you could see his body sort of close in. He started to like sort of shut down. Um, And I was like, oh, my God. And and this is this happened like after I'd already talked to them about this curriculum. So I was just like really, you know, like upset. You know, obviously the teachers can't control the kids, right? But they can educate the kids, right, about different families, right? So I was very much like, we need to do more here and you need to go to that boy and explain to that boy and if necessary, explain to his family um, that there are different families because – this is not okay for my son to have to be put into this repeatedly, right? Um, so, but I felt some resistance at that school. Like I, they were saying, they were saying they were going to do things, but then their actions weren't really following up. Mm. We have lots of thoughts about people and places that do that. Yeah. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> well, and I want to make sure that you got your. Um, I think you actually had kind of a question, India, but for some reason collaboration came up because I feel like there needs to be this place of us as the parents being able to share what our children need, what the parts we're willing to play, but also calling up the the, the school and the leadership and you know the the team members there to say, hey, you have to do your part too everybody has to participate in this and holding your ground if things do get challenging like that, because um, I mean, I've had to deal with similar things to where in a summer camp environment, my son had to encounter someone that was calling him the N word um, and just some really just un and uncomfortable is, is a severe understatement, but having to be very clear of what you will and will not tolerate and what needs to happen and then not putting the ownership back on you to do the education or the fixing. Right. That showed up for me. And I'm wondering from both of you, um, especially you, Steve, is, you know, are you finding yourself in a position where you feel like you're having to bring your work and the emotional labor involved with that to school for free? Yeah, I mean, um, I completely, Erica, agree with what you just said. It's like that we as the parents are not the one that needs to do the work, right? right? Like right. that's the school's job or the camp counselor's job. Right. And so what, what I, I completely agree, it's like you bring the resources to them and then they own it, right? And they take right. responsibility. And I would say what we did is – at, at my, at my, uh, the public school system that we're in, um, like we went and talked about LGBT include, uh, LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. Um, I actually met with the superintendent of the school. Um, we had a great conversation, but we didn't see a lot of movement. So, um, we went to actually the, you know, the school board meeting and was like, you know, public comment. It was like, what are you doing for, you know, LGBTQ families and queer kids? Right. Like, and, and it was just like really powerful. And so there was a voice there. And I think that's the, the collaboration part is like, when you see that in, in action, you just continue to push, right? And like what you said, Erica, about just like saying what you will not tolerate, right? right? Like this is not okay, right? And we'll continue to push forward. I think for us at a certain point, they were like, okay, we'll, we'll move forward these, these items in this agenda. And and I've been involved in sort of like, you know, please look at these, you know, policy documents that we're doing for this, for the entire school district. Would you review them to like, make sure that we're covering the, you know, LGBTQ gender inclusive language and stuff. So I think there has been very good collaboration moving forward. Well, and I think, you know, what you said is important because of the fact that there is no way to foster 
or to create a more inclusive environment in order to talk about the intersectionality of it as well. Because there's um, the concept of you being a gay dad, but then there's also the piece of, you know, your amazing kids being adopted. And sometimes there is this challenge of, yeah, I can navigate one, but I don't know how to navigate both. And particularly when we then put that inside of the educational system, which if we didn't already think that there were challenges with it, COVID called out some of the glaring challenges with it um, that aren't, that, you know, really weren't being addressed. And so, you know, I guess kind of how are you navigating being able to work with the school as an entity that you're, you know, for most of us, our kids are in it. They're in elementary school for the longest stretch, but you know, they're there for a few years and you're hoping that it benefits them, but you're also hoping that it's a lasting impression for whoever is currently there or who will be coming in. So how are you navigating that? Um, You know, to be honest with you, I feel like since COVID has happened, it's been harder for me to keep this stuff in the forefront just because I'm just, in all honesty, just overwhelmed, right? Right. Um, You know, parenting during COVID, two young children, um, managing um, a house, Mm-hmm. Like we we don't realize how much um, they do at school until they're not at school. But like the yep. thing that's been the hardest about COVID is like six meals a day, right? Three snacks <laughs> and three meals, right? Like because because when they go to school, you pack them. You know, they eat breakfast. You pack them. They get snack at school, and you pack them a lunch, or they get lunch at school, right? Like so now, all of a sudden, it's like I mean, literally, like. I'm getting them on their Zoom calls. Teachers are texting me. Your daughter's on YouTube. She's not paying attention. You know, the son's doing this. Teachers are having multiple tech problems, right? Mm-hmm. Not showing up for class because you can't get on Zoom. Their internet's not working. Right. Then you're like dealing with, my kids are in different ages. So like they have different school um, uh, schedules. And so it's like managing that and then trying to work. Yep. it's like so I feel like a lot of this um like the advocacy stuff and the you know the work that I really want to focus on you know it's just this last year I just I had to take a step back right like I just couldn't like add another thing on my plate um and so we will start to re-engage I actually re-engage with the superintendent recently to say where are we at with like moving this agenda forward and so she's like we're starting to you know look at that you know kids are back in school they'll go back full-time in the fall so we'll start to see you know sort of an uptake in that it's been interesting because as someone without children i've watched many of the things that you just described firsthand with our clients with erica and i'm just saying from like the sidelines of being without children like much respect. Thank I don't you. know how parents are maintaining all the things right now. Yeah, see, I always just laugh at the fact that, you know, first of all, I want to acknowledge the fact that your teachers are texting and saying when the kids are off track, because there were points that I was just like, I have a hard time faulting these kids having open browser windows and being like, well, you know, this really isn't that interesting. I'm going to go over here. (laughs) That's what happens. And then feeling like they have eaten second and third breakfast. I'm like, you just ate. What? You are not hungry again. What are we doing? And it's just this constant redirect. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing also this need of like, what do I need to do to take care of them? And what do I have to still have as a priority, but also be realistic about, you know, what the situation is? Because I do think that there were things in reference to school that sadly did have to kind of take a backseat because what what could we do when school was no longer what we'd ever known school to be? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would say that, um, so for me, just personally, like, I started my own business in 2019. So I actually like was sort of really in a building process of my business and then COVID hit. And then it was like, I had to take a step back. So I actually scaled back massively my work. Right. 
because I was like, I can't do it all. There's just no way. I would say one other interesting aspect of COVID that we faced early on in the pandemic was, um, so for our kids, we have um, open adoptions with them. And for my daughter, we see her birth family once a year. And what we uh, experienced was she, she was very concerned about their safety. Um, you know, in the early days, it was very, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a lot of doom and gloom about, you know, um, people dying. And she was very concerned that her birth parents were well and, and that they, you know, hadn't uh, succumbed to COVID. So there was a level of sort of like anxiety around, is her birth mom okay? And is her birth siblings okay? And so that was a sort of an interesting aspect of uh, COVID that we, we, we faced. Um, and then a benefit of COVID has been like, kids aren't in school. Month of May in our house is really hard because it's Mother's Day. And mm. the, and the younger years in the, you know, TK, kindergarten, first and second grade, Mother's Day is like, they spend like two weeks in advance getting prepared for. And in our house, um, for my daughter in, in kindergarten and first grade, the month of May is like the hardest month in our house. Cause she's just like, you know, wanting to know about her birth mom and her birth family. And so a benefit of COVID for us was like, we weren't in school. They weren't getting, you know, all these, uh, let's draw about your, you know, your mom and all this stuff, all none of that happened. And so it was actually for us in some ways, a positive thing because it right. gave them a, a break from that sort of pressure around having to like explain the fact that their, you know, their mom is, their birth mom is alive, but doesn't, you know, they don't live with her and, you know, that relationship. I feel like the idea of a gender identity related parents day, right? Like, why are we not questioning that at this point? Well, the the funny thing, and Steve, I'd love to hear your take on this. The interesting thing for me is in my head, I was like, well, what is the flip side if there are um, two two moms and then Father's Day comes around? What's the flip side? And what it made me think is, is there a way to take something like Mother's Day and Father's Day and to be able to make it more about these, you know, these, these, these role models in your life that, and, and less about them being a mom or a dad, but maybe more about, you know, the energy that comes with them. Cause I tend to be a proponent of, you know, instead of doing the man and woman more about, you know, masculine or feminine from like an energetic standpoint. And we all have people in our lives that really bring that feminine energy or really bring that masculine energy, which has absolutely nothing to do with gender or how they present. And I'm obviously going really large scale on that. But if, and you know, in my head, I'm like, how, how, you know, could that possibly support kids to kind of look at it that way? And it being more about an individual versus them having to be your parent. Who's that person in your life? Yeah. So I completely agree with that. I don't ever want to take mother's day away. I think, um, you know, I, I think that the importance of women in our culture and the importance of mothering and bringing new life into the world is so, so important. It's, I think for me is more like just having it be more inclusive of difference yes. and creating a way to create it more inclusive of difference. Um, but no, I would never, I would never advocate for taking those things away. And I think, you know, what's interesting with Father's Day, it falls in June. So kids are out of school. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, like, oh, shoot, you know, like it'd be, it'd be great if we were in school because then they could do a bunch of Father's Day stuff, right? Like, but they're not. So that's sort of an interesting, but I think it's important to celebrate. And I think what you said about role and energy, I completely agree with that. Like my kids, I'm, you know, sort of more of the um, caretaker in our family and like, you know, take them to the doctor's appointments and, you know, more of the engagement with the schools. And I would say that, you know, my kids often call me mama, right? Like, so they identify with me as being sort of more the female in, in, um, in parenting them. And so I completely agree with that. Like, I think that model of like, 
you know, what does this represent and who are the people in your lives that represent that? I think that's really, you know, sort of how we celebrate it. And also for each individual, like, you know, like for women, right? Like Father's Day can be about, you know, them being, you know, masculine, right? And stepping into their masculine energy, right? Like, so there's different ways that we can do it. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, it's something about like seeing how things have transpired in the last few years that just have us open to even questioning things that maybe some people were not questioning before and how they can be done differently. I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, what can parents do, additional parents that want to be more of an, an ally type role? to support some of the changes that you've been creating within the schools that your children attend? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, like a number of things they can do um, is really um, they can be engaged on the topics and really be asking school administrators things around like, um, is there an LGBTQ and equity inclusive curriculum, right? Like, is there a non-discrimination policy that includes of course, race, color, national orange, origin, immigration status, but sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, is there anti-harassment policy that's inclusive of, you know, sexual orientation, race, gender identity? Like all of these things, um, allies can be asking. Right? Do, are the forms right? Are the policies create, have language that is inclusive of both, uh, you know, two two men and two women households? Um, I think those are sort of uh, some of the things that um, allies can do to help um, and, um, you know, sort of help normalize and help create uh, change in the schools and policies that reflect, uh, you know, all the different families. How, how do you think um, it's been as far as for your school? And I think that obviously this is anecdotal and this is for you, but do you find that it really tends to be those that are experiencing the challenges that are doing the advocacy? Or do you find that there are individuals that are simply saying, hey, from an allyship standpoint, I want these things to be a certain way as well? Um, it's a good question. I don't know that I have a real, um, I don't know that I have my hand on the beat close enough to know that. Um, and really have a, a clear understanding the school that my, so just in all transparency, like we're a multiracial family. Um, my, my, um, uh, kids are multiracial, right? Like, um, my, the father, their father is, um, very dark skinned Filipino. Right. And the school that we go to is, um, I think it's closer, close to 80%, um, you know, people of color, right? Like, so, um, you know, the, 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 the setting that we're in is I'm, I'm definitely, um, you know, sort of very much in the minority. Right. And so I'm not sure that I have as clear of a sense of like, who's doing advocating, um, because our, you know, our system is, is, in uh, our, our, um, school district is, um, I would say, um, very different, um, than, than many. And so uh, I'm not sure. I can tell you that um, there still needs, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done around representation of, of educators um, because there's still, you know, as we know the numbers like nationally that, you know, white, um, white in, in many cases, women are, um, especially in elementary schools are, you know, the vast majority of teachers, there's still a huge amount of work around that that needs to happen at this school. Um, so I think there's, you know, still a ton of, a ton of opportunity. I would say the thing that excites me most when I went to the superintendent around, you know, LGBT inclusive families and, 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 and my, the issues that I thought were important to me, she wanted to frame it, frame it in a much larger context around all underrepresented communities and how do we create a space for all underrepresented communities. And so that's been the direction of the school district, which is very, very pleasing. Um, 
so yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a sense from the superintendent, but I'm not as clear, um, like what, what all the other, I'm not part of the PTA. I'm just like maxed. I'm as far as like, I'm on some other boards. And so I'm like, I just have like a capacity issue with being more engaged on it. Every parent can't do all things. And so yes. <laughs> like we, we, we cannot wear all the hats. And so I want to acknowledge that you play the roles you play. And, yeah. you know, we all kind of have to, to chip in, so to speak. But I think that, um, not that it was a trick question, but it's a question that I think people don't often ask, ask themselves. And yeah. it's worthwhile to hear what the answer is from someone that is having to not only advocate themselves, but also understand the advocacy as a whole. And, you know, you kind of modeling like, it is kind of challenging to know all of those pieces, let alone at a time like this where there isn't as much transparent, transparency and clarity around things because of COVID yeah. um, and kind of what's happening, but that it is an important question to ask yeah. to be able to even consider it, let alone be able to get some type of input around the answers to it. Yeah, no, and I... I... I, uh, I think you, your uh, question was really good. And, you know, we all have sort of blind spots, right? Like, so I think it was, um, for me, that's really a great takeaway. Um, and I, and then definitely with COVID, it's like, I think prior to COVID, we were, we were the school district and working with the superintendent and with the principal, we were like, had momentum. And then once COVID hit, it was just like, you know, it's just such a cluster, right. Of like trying to get education put out there, um, on zoom. And so all of those other issues, it was just like forefront where like parents just like, you know, how do I manage all of this? Right. And how do we keep our kids moving forward with their education? So I think it's a good, I think this fall will be a really important time to sort of resurface. And, and for me, I think to really understand who else is advocating for change in the schools. Right. We all have these areas where we can see what we can't and then, you know, what we can't see, we try to hold space for it and, and hope to have some of those things filled in by those that maybe do, you know, know a little bit more of, of where that's not maybe our area of expertise. Yeah. Um, as we begin to wind down, India, are there any things that you want to make sure that you have asked Steve? Because I know we like to make sure that we're giving some action steps and we're closing it out strong. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think if we could give allies one thing to go do to support the changes in their school, that would be beautiful. I know there's so many things to do. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, sometimes one, one gets them started. Yeah, one thing that allies can do, I think, especially in elementary schools, and I'll just talk about that really quickly, is uh, they can make, make donations of books that are uh, inclusive of people of color of, um, you know, gender expression, LGBTQ families, right? Like, mm -hmm. like the schools are always like looking for more books, right? Like where we're at. So it's like either make a donation and provide a list of um, LGBTQ uh, uh, people of color, books that are relevant. In my case, adoption, I usually bring a list of those books and say, here's a donation of, you know, X dollars, can you, you know, for the library or for the classrooms, purchase some of these books, right? So like that, I think is a something any ally can do. And actually one of, one of my um, daughter's families, like, was like really trying to understand some of the issues. And it was like, hey, well, here, let me provide you with a list of, you know, books that you can then, you know, advocate for. So I think those, those are like, and that's pretty simple, right? Like you can, carry that forward in an email and it's very sort of actionable. It's not big wonky policy stuff for, you know, for, um, that could be more complicated. I think that's a beautiful place to start. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. And I feel like speaking of books, I didn't want the whole episode to go without mentioning yours in your book. You share a lot of your journey of the process of becoming a father and the adoption process and really beginning and forming the foundation for your family. Um, and I would love for you to share a little bit more with us about, you know, what any listeners who may be interested in forming a family themselves can, um, 
can do to begin to start that process and the ways that they can work with you on that? Yeah, so thank you for that question. So, um, I mean, the reason I really wrote my book was to help um, LGBTQ people that are interested, also to help heterosexual people that are struggling with um, fertility issues and really thinking about other ways to create family, right? And um, what I, the reason I wrote the book in a memoir fashion was that I wanted to share with people sort of the, um, emotional journey to parenthood. And I would say I um, talk about the process and sort of some of the steps folks need to take, but I also talk about like the uncertainty, the lack of control, you know, um, how we are, you know, often put in places um, when we're going through adoption and in many cases in surrogacy, like having to um, withstand, you know, a lot of loss, right. Um, As we're, um, you know, facing, you know, placements that don't happen. And um, in the case of surrogacy, where, you know, um, um, there's um, eggs that are not, uh, they're not able to, to be used for, uh, for um, insemination. So there's a lot of loss in the process. And so I write a lot about that and around, you know, the uncertainty. And I think that is sort of the gift of my book is really for folks um that are like, oh, I'm gonna, ha- you know, I'm gonna have this, I'm gonna create this family, and it's really a, a way to share with them that it's like it's a journey. There's a lot of times that it's really, really hard, and um, and you know, I want you to know that that's normal. It's all part of the process, and um, you know, there are others that are going through sort of the same thing. So the title of my book is Determined to Be Dad. It's available on Amazon on my website. Um, and yeah, that's that's a little bit about it. I highly recommend checking it out because it actually did give um, a lot. One, it, it gave the context around you as a human. And I think whenever you're reading a book and you kind of can get a little bit of a better idea about someone's experiences, particularly when they don't mirror your own, there's a lot of value there. But you gave information that I wasn't aware of when it comes to the process of adoption, you know, kind of what your experience was of, you know, we now have this baby and what does it look like to go through like your home and childcare and all these pieces and the things that made your experience different. And it was a really valuable way of thinking about what my experience was of actually having my kids, but how there's a lot of similarity there with having this new baby and it's like, oh shit, they didn't send you home with a manual and I don't know what to do with so many things. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of value in seeing where there's differences, but yet where there's similarities. I completely, I think we're more similar than we are different. And that's, you know, sort of the work of connecting with other human beings, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, awful things in the world, right? A lot of awful people, but, but God, there's a lot of goodness and there's a lot of commonality in that goodness and humanity. And so, um, yeah, that was really, um, a a really important part of writing. It was how, how much we are similar. Right. Um, and yes, they don't give you a manual and they're still not giving us a manual. (laughs) They never wrote the COVID manual. That's for damn sure. Right. I didn't swear this whole show. That's for damn sure. They did not write the COVID manual. (laughs) We were too vanilla. I did not swear. I just realized. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. I'll make up for it on all the episodes before and after. (laughs) I've got all of them. Awesome. So, Steve, go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you, and they'll be able to find everything about where to get your book, Determined to Be Dead, um, in the show notes. But make sure to let everyone know where to find and connect with you. Yeah. So, uh, Determined to Be Dead dot com will direct you to um, the book. Uh, Steve dot com is my website. Um, and uh, you can find my services there. Um, I'm a, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And it's in most of the cases, it's Steve at Instagram or 
or um, on Facebook. So I'm pretty uh, pretty easy to find. There's not very many many folks with my last name, so um, <laughs> that makes that makes uh, makes life a little bit easier. But yeah, just come and check it out. And um, thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, love this conversation. Um, I love the work you're doing, and um, I love that you're having these really uh, open and um, uh, important and, in some cases, difficult conversations that folks need to hear. Thank you. Thank you for being here with both of us. Absolutely. Thank you. The takeaway that Steve gave about buying the books or uh, donating the money to buy the books, that that was fucking amazing because so often it's like I don't know what to do or it's a huge thing and I don't I don't know if I'm ready for it and this was absolutely 150% actionable it's something that can be done and I think that it gave a really simple and you know tangible way of being able to be in action and like I, I couldn't have asked for better and I what I really loved was this conversation laid out reasons why imperfect allyship is so important so that those of us that are receiving the pieces of these systems that have not been dismantled quite yet don't have to be the receivers and the people to do all of the fighting to dismantle it so this is the fight that you do not have to figure out on your own how to be a part of and how to support taking it apart brick by brick you can do this with other imperfect allies doing their own imperfect allyship work come on over to pause on the play.com forward slash community you can join today you can be a part of the conversation that is going to get you in action the show notes will have all of the information so you can go on over learn more about steve you can go ahead and order the book determined to be dead which i highly recommend great book and you'll be able to pick up all the info you need from the article that we create specifically for everyone that isn't listening in in the traditional way. So as always, thank you so much again for being here, for listening in to my conversation with India and Steve, and for being present to consider how you can be an imperfect ally. So thank you for being here, creating the bridge to walk over and become the change that you want to see. I will see you next week. Take care of yourself. And until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?